Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let's get into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, are you the type of people that make New Year's resolutions? Um, I, I kind of fluctuate in and out. Um, I think it's good to do it, or if you're not into that, it's not, it's not making a law. I'm not trying to make any spiritual point that you need to be the type of person that writes things down. But I will say that uh, I have the type of personality that I'm, I'm, the end of the year and the beginning of the new year is a bit of a struggle for me. Um, I, I have sort of a strange sort of mixture of extrovert and introvert, and, and oftentimes I can kind of get into a little bit of a melancholy stage, and a lot of times... The holidays and the end of the year is a vulnerable time for me because I'm thinking about this past year. And oftentimes that's, that's a real vulnerable time for me because I'll be thinking about things, maybe shortcomings and failures or things that I didn't do well or, or things that aren't quite like I want them to be in my life or in this church. And, and, I, and I run the risk of sort of being absorbed in regret. But then also it's, it's, it's a time when we look forward. Okay, it's just something just something about the calendar hitting a new year that it's like a fresh start, you know, and January's coming, and so it's a good time for us to just assess our world and our lives, and so it's often a time when we think about goals or things that we want to do better, things that, resolutions that we want to make, we want to be resolved to correct our regrets of the past, and and that can be a good thing to do, but that that can also be kind of a a dangerous thing to do spiritually, because because if if we look back on the things that maybe we failed in the past year, our regrets, our shortcomings, our failures, our sin, we can unwittingly forget the gospel and click into sort of, I'm going to do better mode, and then let all of our energy for the upcoming year, all of our resolve, be more of a reaction to our own shortcomings than a sort of gospel, scripture-saturated thing that God has called us to do. And so this morning, I want to, as we're standing here on the edge of a new year, help us think about regret and resolve and how these things should be informed by the gospel. So to do that, we're going to read this one verse, and we're going to just peel it back and unpack the truth that is in this one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I think is one of the most important verses in the Bible. And we're going to look at how that will inform our regret. We're going to look at how there's a bad way, there's a wrong way to deal with regret, and then there's a gospel way to deal with regret. And then we'll look forward to resolve, looking forward to a new year. There's a a wrong way to be resolved, and then there's a gospel way to be resolved. So let me read 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and then uh, I'll pray and we'll, we'll get into it. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, as we come now to your word at the end of this year, that uh, at least for me as I get older, it just seems like the years go by so much quicker. It's, it's, it's really amazing to think that it's already 2013 here in just a few days. Uh, Lord, the pace of our life and the busyness of our culture 
uh, can be mind-numbing at times. And so I pray that you would give us a special kindness this morning to think deeply about this one verse and the implications, the, the awesome and eternal implications that it has for us as followers of Jesus and that you might you might recalibrate our hearts to think about our shortcomings in the past and our resolve for the future through the lens of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And I pray that Christians would leave this room this morning with a a sort of uh, humble boldness in the truth of the gospel for this upcoming year. I pray for my friends that are in this room, and surely there are some with a crowd this size that do not know Jesus. Maybe some that think they do, but do not truly. And maybe some that are aware that they're not followers of Christ, and they're here just with a friend or investigating. I pray, Lord, by your kindness, that you might give them a heart, a new heart, so that they can believe in Jesus, that you'd give them ears to hear, and eyes to see so that they can turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. And Father, I pray that you do all these things for your glory and for the joy of your people and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21 very briefly, and then let's look at how that informs our regret and our resolve. This verse is, as I mentioned, one of the most important, one of the most packed full of truth in the entire Bible. Let's look again at, at, at verse 21 there. It's saying that for our sake, He, meaning God the Father, made Him, meaning God the Son, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, called this verse, the truth of this verse, the great exchange. And basically what this verse is saying, it's very simple. It's saying that on the cross, Jesus took our sin. He bore the sin of his people and that he bore the punishment that came uh, with that sin. And then on the cross also, so he gets our sin and we get his righteousness that on the cross, Jesus is doing more than just dying for our sin, as important as that was, but he's also rising again in victory over sin and death. And now because he is alive, he is now giving. In fact, the word that the theologians use is he's, God is reckoning. I love that word because, you know, it's kind of one of those old southern words, I reckon. Well, it's, it's a biblical word. He is reckoning the righteousness, the perfection of Christ's life to all those that will turn and trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. So on the cross, this verse is telling us is that God is regarding Jesus, who's God in the flesh and has lived the perfect life. He is regarding him as sin. And Jesus is becoming, he's, he's becoming sin for his people. He's taking on the sin of all of his people on the cross and the punishment that comes with that and that punishment which is God's justice. And he is dying and he's taking that sin away. And then in rising in victory, he is now giving, he is reckoning his righteousness 
to his people. This is not just a, a New Testament concept. It's not just something that God kind of came up with to solve the problem of human sin during Jesus' life. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. The plan of redemption was not a reaction by God. It was planned before creation even happened. And in fact, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this very truth that we read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus was born. In verse 4 of Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he, speaking of the suffering servant Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Listen to this last part of verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. And so Jesus is bearing the sin, the iniquities, the failures of his people. And then look at the at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is taking on his shoulders the sin of his people. And then skip down to verse 10. Listen to what the prophet says. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So, so let's think about this for a second. The cross was, was not something that was unplanned. In fact, it was planned by God. It was God's plan of redemption to offer God the Son as a sacrifice to bear the weight of the sin of his people. And verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And verse 11 says that out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, so that's Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquity. So again, there's that exchange happening there. Jesus is, is taking the sin, all the sin of his people, and then by his work and death and resurrection on the cross, he is now giving his righteousness to his people. That's what it says on the bottom of verse 11 there, that he is, by his act there, he's making many to be accounted righteousness, or by righteous, by giving them his righteousness, those who turn and trust in him. And by the way, the, the very thing that makes them righteous, the, the faith that they exercise in his work, even that is a gift that God gives to his people through Jesus. And so what, what we have here is we have Jesus, and you need to see this before we move on into looking at how this informs our regret and resolve. Jesus becomes the substitute for our atonement. So Jesus on the cross is, is not just sort of dying. You know, there's a, a American church culture can, can water down hard twos like this and, and, and see Jesus on the cross as just a sort of moral example of servanthood. Friends, that's not the heart of what Jesus has done. Although that may be a truth that's a sort of second or third level truth of what Jesus has done. But the heart of what God has done in Christ is he has put Jesus forward as a substitute for our reconciliation or our atonement with God. So we were separated from God, hopelessly separated, 
unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God, wallowing in spiritual death and sin and rebellion, and Jesus comes, God in the flesh, lives the life that we were supposed to live, obeys where we disobeyed, then willingly lays down that perfect life as a sacrifice, a substitute on the cross, whereby then all of God's wrath and justice for our sin is poured out on Jesus and extinguished. It's completely satisfied by Jesus' perfect work on the cross. And, and Jesus is satisfactory because he's not just man, he's also God, and he's perfect. And so Jesus then absorbs all of God's justice for the sin. It's enough for the sin of all of mankind, but it's only effective for those that will turn and trust in him. And then he extinguishes it and rises again in victory and now gives, imparts, reckons his righteousness to his people. So even though we still in this life battle with sin and unrighteousness and failure and shortcoming, when God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ and he sees our sin as being taken away as Springer read this morning from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west and he sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness. So Jesus is the substitute for our atonement. And this is kind of a cool little thing. I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, even though I've been saying this word for many, many years. That atonement word is an old English word that's a sort of combination of the phrase at one moment. So this is the moment when we become one, again, reconciled with God through Jesus' work. And so do you see the great exchange? Jesus takes our sin... And he bears the penalty for it. It doesn't mean that we still don't have to wrestle with sin. And it doesn't mean that we still don't have to deal with the earthly temporal consequences of sin. But it means that the penalty of sin has once and for all been removed and extinguished. There is now, therefore, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He takes it away and he reckons to us he imparts to us his righteousness. So it's not something from within us. It's not if you've been a pretty good kid, you get a lot of righteousness. And if you were some, you know, uh, 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 you know rebel and you just kind of snuck in the back door, you just get a little bit of righteousness, enough to save you maybe if you hold on tight. No, no, no. You get the righteousness of the perfect one, Christ. So he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. The great exchange is what Luther calls it. And, and friends, that is... that's. That's the point of the Bible. That's Genesis to Revelation, working out that story in narrative form, that that is the plan and purpose of God to do that for the glory of his name and the salvation of his people so that they might praise him forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's, listen, I mean, come on now. That's in one little verse. So if you want to have a little go-to verse, you know, that's a good one to have. So then, how does this inform our regret over the past and our resolve for the future? This idea that Jesus has taken away our sin once and for all and given us his righteousness forevermore. How does this inform first our regret? Well, I think that it, it teaches us that there is a wrong way to deal with regret. There's a wrong way to deal with regret. I think one of the ways that we wrongly deal with regret is that we 
mistakenly place more value in our regret or sin or failure or shortcoming than we do in the truth of what we just read from 2 Corinthians 5.21. We place more value in our sin. Think about this. We make this sort of subconscious value judgment so often. We think, oh, well, you know, we think that Jesus can save somebody else or we think that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to forgive and redeem somebody else's life, but we sort of carry around, like that little creature on Lord of the Rings, this little ring of our sin as if it's our little precious, and we hold on to it, and, and we really, I think even subconsciously, value it more than we do the power of Jesus' work on the cross. Think about the arrogance of how we sort of hold on to guilt and condemnation. Think about really what we're saying. I mean, nobody's saying this consciously, but think about subconsciously what we're saying when we just wallow in self-condemnation. We are making a statement that the condemnation or the guilt that we feel from our sin is more powerful than God the Son's work on the cross. That's a wrong way to deal with regret. Think, I mean, we're, we're, we're like hiding our, our little feelings of condemnation or guilt or regret or shortcoming. My precious. And, and the strange thing about, it, it's weird, as I was thinking about why I do this sometimes, I think the reason we do this is because when we sort of wallow in this sort of introspective condemnation, it feels kind of religious, doesn't it? It kind of feels sort of humble and pious and sort of like the Christian thing to do. And really, it's, it's, it's sort of the height of self-absorption. I've noticed in my life that I can become almost addicted to lingering feelings of guilt and inadequacy because it makes me feel like I'm being humble and earnest and taking God seriously. But really what I'm doing is I am esteeming my sin and my guilt or the consequences that maybe I've had to endure. I am making that more powerful than the most important truth in the universe, which is Jesus' redeeming work to forgive the sin of his people. That is a wrong way to deal with regret. So as you look back on your shortcomings and failure and sin of 2012 or just maybe, you know, 20 years ago, have, have you been holding on to that like we are so prone to do and giving this little feeling of condemnation a sort of self-absorbed value higher than the work of God the Son on the cross. So what's the gospel way then to deal with regret? If that's a wrong way to deal with it, what's a, a good gospel way to deal with regret? Well, we talked about it a little bit, but I think that we need to understand this beautiful biblical concept of what Jesus has done on the cross because when we're tempted to value our feelings of condemnation or regret as greater than Jesus' work on the cross, we need to go to God and to the truth and to the gospel. We need to remember the truth of the gospel. And to do that, I think we would be well served if we understood this beautiful biblical word. It's a long word. It's not a common word, but it's in the Bible, at least the more literal versions of the Bible, and it's this word propitiation. 
propitiation, what does that mean? Don't, don't check out now. Don't, don't, don't walk away from here saying, oh, he just used big words. Now, come on, be, be tougher than that. Now, come on, be tougher than that. All right, this beautiful biblical word is a word that means it's to appease the wrath of an offended person and then be reconciled to them because of some sacrifice, okay? That's what a propitiation means. It means to absorb punishment and change punishment into favor, right? And so that's what Jesus does. So let me, well, let me quote to you 1 John 4.10. It says that in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the, the wrath-absorbing, appeasing sacrifice for his justice, satisfy it, and then turn it into reconciliation and redemption. He has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, so let's, let's just look a little bit more slowly at 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, meaning you don't have to get yourself squared away before God will sort of deem you worthy. You're in a ditch. Sin hasn't just neutralized you. It's killed you, man. We are, we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what the Bible says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We're dead. We're not on life support. We're dead. We are completely unable. Romans 8 Verse 7 and 8, some around in there says that the, the carnal mind or the mind that is dead in sin, it, it not, it's not just having a hard time obeying God or submitting to God. It says that it cannot obey God and submit to him. But see, here's the good news. This is why the gospel is, is so scandalous to our minds because while we were dead, God comes to us and it says there, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the appeasement, the propitiation for the sin of his people. And, and so a, a gospel way to deal with regret is to when you're racked with that feeling or that memory comes and you're laying in your bed at 11.30 night and it just seems like, it seems like doubt and regret and despair hits me right as I'm about to doze off to sleep. Right, is anybody else like that? I mean, I'll be, thank you, one other two of us. Appreciate that, Gloria. I'll be right about the doze off. Boom. Something will hit my mind where I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I failed that person. Or I haven't been what I needed to be there. And in that moment, we have a couple options. We can just let it just sort of, we can, we can let it just become more powerful than the truth of the gospel. Or we can take that feeling, we can take that 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 thing that's about to overtake us, and we can run with it to the cross and remember what Jesus has already done with that sin and all of its consequences, that he has died for it, and the punishment that we fear, whether it's the punishment of the opinion of some person that we've disappointed, or whatever it is, that the ultimate punishment that we should fear, which is God's justice, has once and for all been taken away. So if God is for me, who can be against me? And so we take that regret to the cross and remember that Jesus hasn't just sort of saved us so that we can now kind of keep our obedience up to snuff and hopefully if we endure to the end, God will, will take us. No, he has appeased God's justice towards us once and for all. So then, all of the punishment from God for all of our sins and failures and regret has been dealt with once and for all and satisfied by Jesus. 
as a result, condemnation is extinguished, and it no longer remains for the Christian. Yes, in God's kindness and providence, we may have to wrestle with some consequences for our sins, but even those he uses to refine us and to make us more into the image of Christ. And so, friends, the gospel way to deal with regret is not to to idolize it and to hold on to it and to subconsciously deem it as more powerful than Jesus' work, but to take it and run to the cross and say, Jesus, I remember what the Bible says. You died for this. You've taken this away. There now, therefore, is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. But this is important. Friends, this isn't true about everybody. So I'm speaking presumptively here like this has already happened in your life. But it may not be true for you. It is only true for those who are trusting in what Jesus has done for them. This is only true for Christians. How do you know how to do that? This is the good news of the gospel. It just keeps getting better and better and better. There's not some sort of step you have to go through. There's not some card that you have to fill out. There's not some magic prayer that you have to say. Look to Jesus. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from trusting in your own morality. Turn away from that condemnation. Turn away from that sin. Turn away from that failure. Turn away from that broken pleasure. And look to Jesus even now. And this reconciliation, this atonement, this substitute can be yours too now. Even now. Now, now you may say, I'm not sure if I have enough faith. Friends, none of us have enough faith. But here's the good news of the gospel. We are saved not because of the strength of our faith. We're saved because of the strength of the object of our faith. Remember that analogy a couple months ago or weeks ago or whatever about this, this, this lake that has been iced over and this lake has got two feet of ice and you have a kid that runs out on it with total confidence that the, lake is go- the iced over lake is going to hold him up and then you have this other little kid who's nervous and scared about whether or not he might fall through and they play around on this one's scared and one's confident and then they play ice hockey or whatever and then they come off and they go to sleep or whatever. Well friends, both of them were saved by the thickness of the ice, be- ice because because what saved them was not their faith in whether or not the ice could hold them, but what saved them was the object of their faith, which was the ice. So some of us have weak faith. Some of us have strong faith. We're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're saved by the strength of the object of our faith, friends. That's the good news of the gospel. So you may find yourself a bruised reed this morning. You may find yourself beat up by life. You may find yourself so racked in addiction and sin that you can't even see which way is up. Friends, there's good news. The good news of the gospel is not muster faith. Spurgeon says that saving faith can even come to us in a slender wire. Look to Jesus like one glance, man. One glance is enough to save you even now. And take that, take every bit of regret and every, every bit of shame and every bit of condemnation with that tiny little glimmer of hope that you have and look to Jesus, look away from yourself and friends, he is mighty to save even now. So, what is your biggest regret or failure from this past year or maybe from the last 42 years of your life? Are you regarding your regret or your sin or failure or shortcoming, couch it in whatever 
pop psychology term that you want. <laughs> it's sin. Are you regarding that as stronger and more powerful than Jesus' work on the cross? Are you prone to wallow in self-absorbed guilt? Look to Jesus even now. And one more thing before we move on to looking forward to be resolved is, friends, this is not a, an individual sport. Like, this is, God gives us community. He gives us the local church. It's impossible for us to keep this perspective on our own. I mean, that's why we need people around us, people who are close enough, close enough to us that have the right to say hard things to us and point out to us how we might be obsessing over regret and how we might be forgetting the gospel. Friends, you need people around you. You need to be part of a local church. You need to, you need to be connected with other believers in community. I encourage you to prioritize, maybe connecting with a community group. Prioritize joining this church if you're not a member. Friends, not that joining a church makes you some sort of star student or gives you an extra little happy face on your scorecard with God. Don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm saying that you need biblical, real community to be a Christian. You need to love gathering with the saints. You need to come and you need to want to sing the songs. You need to want to open your Bible. You need to want to encourage others. That, that, that God gives us those means of grace so that we can deal with our regret. All right, well, that's regret. Now let's look quickly, quickly at about looking forward. How does 2 Corinthians 5 help us and inform us to be resolved? We're looking forward to maybe some New Year's resolution because what we can do, remember, we can, we can sort of forget the gospel and we can look back on our regret and be overtaken with guilt and self-absorption and forget the gospel. But just as much of a danger is now we can look forward to the upcoming year and say, okay, I'm going to react. I'm not going to make that mistake again. And so I'm going to grip the steering wheel and I'm going to white knuckle this puppy and I'm going to step on the gas and I'm going to go because I'm going to do better. And that can be just as dangerous of a mentality if we forget the gospel. So there's a, a wrong way to look forward and to be resolved. So let's look at the wrong way or a wrong way to be resolved. And I think the primary wrong way that we often fall prone to, to being resolved is that we disconnect what we should do from what Christ has already done. Remember when we were going through Ephesians and we looked at the structure of even the letter of Ephesians and we looked at how the first half of Ephesians are are all about truths of what God has done in Christ. He has made you alive. He has reconciled you to himself. And so then as an implication, because of what Christ has done for you, now chapters 4, 5, and 6, then now you are now empowered to do this. Because remember the truth of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Not only has he taken away your sin, but he has given you Christ's righteousness. Now the Spirit of Christ 
dwells in us. You are now a temple of God's spirit. You now have the righteousness of Christ. You now have the body of Christ. You now have a mind to understand God, God's word. And now you have these things and now you have this, this foundation from which you can now carry out the commands of scripture for your good and your joy. And what we often do is we disconnect what we should do from what Christ has done. And so we read a verse in the Bible and it says, don't, don't do this. And so th this is kind of how religion snuffs out life. We, we kind of compile these lists. I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do this, and I'm not gonna do this. And we, we put all of our energy into just checking off the list and we untether it, we disconnect it from what Christ has done. And we, we fail to remember that the only hope we have of obeying God for our joy is by remembering that Jesus has given us his righteousness. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his character. And although we will still fail in this life, we can fall down and get back up. And when we get back up, we know that God sees us robed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's so important to remember that what Christ has done for us is the foundation that we stand on and jump from and spring to life into, into what we should do. Beware of the bad example of the Galatians. This is what Paul writes to the Galatians about this very thing. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so what he's saying there, it's kind of a, a biblical sentence there that maybe doesn't translate to our modern sort of vernacular well, but what he's saying is, did you, did you become a Christian, in other words, receive the Spirit by obeying works of the law or by hearing by this miraculous miracle of God giving you faith, and all of a sudden you heard the message. He's, it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, you became a Christian by grace. You became a Christian because God opened your ears and you heard the message of the gospel, and you became a Christian by the Spirit of God, not by your works of the flesh. And then he goes on to say, are you so foolish now in verse 3? Having begun by the Spirit, in other words, having begun by grace, having begun because of God's work on your behalf and nothing else, are you now being perfected or trying to live this life in the flesh? And so what he's saying to the Galatians is, and the context of what was happening in the Galatian church, was they had initially received the gospel from Paul, the gospel of grace, and they understood it well. Then Paul left. And then they started to hear these false teachers who came in and said, oh, well, you have to do this plus Jesus. You have to be circumcised and believe in Jesus. You have to do this and this and this. And so they started to add on to the Christian life a list of regulations that the gospel had canceled and was fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul is saying, no, no, no. You can't unhook what Christ is calling you to do from what Christ has already done for you. So don't try and live this Christian life as a sort of works game, a, a sort of list that you live out. Remember to stand on the gospel. Don't try and hold it up by your works. John Piper, a pastor that uh, has been very influential on, on me and the other pastors here, writes about this, and he writes about this this notion of this debtor's ethic. 
It's this idea that we've got we've to live for God because he did so much for us. And so I've got to do, I've got to do better, I've got to do better. You know, he did so much for me, now I've got to do better. I've got I've I've to resolve to not mess up and prove it to God. And he writes in several of his books, this one, a book to pastors called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He writes, beware of the debtor's ethic. I think we have this quote on the screen. He says, the debtor's ethic has a deadly appeal. It comes packaged as as a gratitude ethic and says things like, God has done so much for you, now what will you do for him? He gave you his life, now how much will you give him? The Christian life is pictured as an effort to pay back the debt we owe to God. The admission is made, of course, that we will never fully pay it off, but the debtor's ethic demands that we work at it. Good deeds and religious acts are the installment of payments we make on the unending debt we owe God. Friends, that is not the gospel. And if we're in that mentality, what we do is we detach our response to the gospel from the gospel, and we think, well, well, God's been so good to me, now I've got to pay him back. And I've got to resolve to just do better and do better. We grab the steering wheel, and we white-knuckle that thing until we drive it off into the ditch. And what Piper is saying here, and what Paul, more importantly, is saying in Galatians, and what the whole Bible is saying is that when we are in Christ, we not only have, have our sin taken away, but we have the righteousness of Christ now. And because of what Jesus has done for me, now I am empowered to live for him. And I, I'm not in this thing where I'm having to pay back God for his goodness to me, because who could ever pay back God? In fact, Paul writes that in Romans 11. He says, have we given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So there's a wrong way to be resolved unhooking our response to the gospel from the gospel in a sort of guilty debtor's ethic. And then there's a right way to be resolved, the gospel way to be resolved, and I conclude with this. And one of the things I love about it is it's just, it's simple. It may not be easy. That's why we need each other for the Christian life, but it is simple. The gospel way to be resolved, the same way that you received Christ, is the same way that you resolve to walk in Christ. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith, by grace, walk in Him. So as as I look towards this upcoming year, Lord, I failed you in so many areas in 2012. I'm going to resist the temptation to try and make up for my sin or my regret. That's the debtor's ethic. And I'm going to resist the temptation to just sort of white-knuckle it and do better because that'll last until February. I'm going to remember that you have saved me by your grace and that you, by Christ's righteousness, are counting me as righteous and you're giving me the Holy Spirit and you're giving me the body of Christ and you are giving me all of this so that just as I received you, I can walk in grace. So that means that if I start that Bible reading plan on January 1st and and I get a week behind before the first month is already gone, it need not send me into undue condemnation I am in Christ, and so I can be encouraged. I can pick up from where I am right now, and I can not have this sort of unhealthy expectation that I've got to maintain this perfection because 
God sees me as righteous in Christ, and so now I am free. I am free to run to God in confidence rather than away from God in failure. As you receive Christ, so walk in Him. Now, many Christians think that this high view of grace and this high view of God's work in our life leads to a sort of lazy living. I I don't. And I think the Apostle Paul agrees with me. Actually, I agree with him. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what he writes about that very notion that this truth would lead to a sort of laissez-faire, lazy Christianity. No, no. This is what Paul writes. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, it didn't lead to laziness and inactivity. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see a right view of the gospel, what it does for the sanctification, the resolve of a Christian? It doesn't propel them into laziness. It doesn't send them into regretful condemnation or self-absorption. It says, okay, if God is for me, who can be against me? So I'm going to practice, baby. I'm going, man. I'm going to write down a list of things that I'm going to do, and I know it's not my strength that I'm going to accomplish these things in, and I know that whether I fall or fail or succeed, that I am clothed in righteousness because of what Christ has done, and that is unchangeable. That's immutable. That will never go away, and because of that, I'm going to go, man. I'm going to go. I'm going to run, and I'm going to fall occasionally, but I'm going to run, and I'm going to have a whole bunch of other brothers and sisters around me. They're going to help me get up and say, come on, bro. Go, 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 and I'm going to run. I'm going to go. I love this analogy. I was meeting with a brother the other day before Christmas, and, uh, and he's a coach, and my dad was a coach, and I often think of this picture of the gospel. Think of uh, a little kid learning how to play baseball or to throw a football or shoot a free throw. Let's, let's, let's single in on the baseball analogy. And think about that dad at the Little League field who puts so much pressure on his son. And the dad that's kind of behind the fence, you know, barking out to his kid to keep your elbow up, dig in, you know, all these crazy little things, probably because he was a failed athlete and he's trying to live through vicariously through his son. But anyway, that's another story. And he's putting all this pressure on his son to succeed and get a hit. Now, he loves his son, but... But really, he's putting pressure on his son, and the son feels the pressure, and the son knows that to some degree, his father's approval of him is based on how well he does at bat. Now, think about how difficult it is to function in that environment. You're nervous, and you're seeking approval that may or may not be there depending on your performance. That's a difficult environment to swing the bat in. Contrast that then with a father who loves his kid. He doesn't care so much about some silly little game. He just loves his boy. 
And he says to his boy, get up there, man, have fun, go swing for the fences, son. Go, man, have fun, dig in. Oh, you struck out, oh, man. You're coming up again in a couple innings. You went over for four today? That's okay, son, because no matter how many times you strike out, I love you, you're my boy, and nothing will ever change that. Nothing. Now, what does that do to the heart of that little boy? Does it make him lazy? Does it make him want to sit in the dugout and chase butterflies? No, it empowers him with confidence. He wants to get up to the plate, man, because he knows whether he strikes out 10 times or hits a home run or whatever he does, his daddy loves him, and that empowers him to be the best that he can be. And friends, that's what Paul is saying there, that he is working hard because it is not him but God who works in him to will and to do all of his good in his life. Friends, that's the gospel way to be resolved. And that's the way I, I want to look forward to 2013. This is what Paul writes, and I end with this in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who regrets run to the cross. Let the one who resolves run to the cross. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us respond to him. Father, as we come now to respond to these truths from your Bible, I pray first for people that are in this room, again, that may, maybe came in and are not yet believing. Maybe they've had a, a wrong impression of what the good news of the gospel is, and they, they think that they've had, to, they've had to sort of improve themselves before or get to some sort of level of respectability before you would love them. That's just a lie. Lord, would you give them a heart to believe by your sovereign grace, would you give them a heart to believe? Would you give them the very faith that you require of them? Because that's their only hope. Would you give it now? And Lord, even if that faith may seem weak to them, would they, would they take that faith and would they exercise it and look to Jesus, look away from themselves and look to Jesus? And friend, if that's you right now, look to Jesus and say even to him right now, just in your heart, in your mind, under your breath, Jesus, I look to you, I look away from myself. Just say to him even now, I, I want to believe that you alone can save me from sin and failure and regret and this life of futility. And, I, and I'm putting my hope in you, Jesus. Say that even right now, friend. Oh, friend. He will, he will answer that prayer every time. And remember, 
He doesn't answer that prayer because your faith is strong. He answers that prayer because he is strong. Look to him even now. Father, I pray that you'd you'd give the faith to a person in this room who didn't have it when they walked in this room so that they can become one of your children and receive all of what we've talked about here in this past hour. And Lord, for the rest of us, my friends that were already believers in Jesus, Lord, would you, would you give us this kindness to deal with our regret and our resolve in a, a gospel-saturated way? And would you give us all a sort of strange humility and kindness and love for one another? Because Lord, in this upcoming year, we're going to strike out a bunch Lord, we, we need brothers and sisters cheering us on to dig back in and go for the glory of God and for our joy. Father, would you do these things? I pray that you'd do these things. Not because we're good, but because Christ is. So we pray it in that great name. Amen.